Again, I'll be reading for you out of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Hear now the very word of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose word may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountains, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels in festal gathering, into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, into the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase Yet, once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for the receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are mighty words, mighty wondrous truths, a mighty reality, an amazing and awful, both in judgment and in grace, of your power, the reality of what is occurring in the here and now. And we are here before you now in the very midst of what is being spoken of, that we have come to you in worship. Father, help us to do so with reverence and in all as we hear your word proclaimed this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I have mentioned recently in the past that I have started taking up swimming again, and for the past couple of weeks I have been going to the Y a couple of times a week and doing some swimming, and I've become friends with a lifeguard, and I, when I tell stories about the lifeguard or I, I recount the conversations I have, he, his name is Larry, so he's lifeguard Larry to me, 
Um, and he's a fun guy, and he, I think he loves to have conversation. And I've had to kind of cut short the last couple of times because I have to, to get on to work. But he um, was talking to me this past week about his time that he spent on the coast of North Carolina and how he um, experienced a hurricane. I can't remember the name of this particular hurricane, but we were talking about the power of water and how here I am going every day and spending time swimming in this pool and, and it wouldn't take very much for him to have to come and to help me out. There are times when um, I'm swimming that I'm pushing myself a little more just so that I could um, get to the wall without having to just stop and rest and float in the middle of the pool. I had a couple of triathletes um, swimming next to me this week. I'm kind of hoping that they don't come back, but they, you know, they're already passing me up multiple times. And so there's no chance for me even trying, but I don't want to look horrible. You know, I don't want to look like I'm drowning. I don't want to make uh, lifeguard Larry jump in. And so sometimes I push myself and I'm thinking, man, if I, if I don't, if I go too much pushing myself, I'll probably just have to breathe and then, and I'll end up um, needing his assistance. Water is a very powerful thing. And, and he was telling me how when he saw this hurricane that he was talking about these rivers. And I can't remember the names of the rivers that he was talking about. But three of these rivers converging in one place. And with the hurricane and the rain and everything that was going on, it was just a, a raging water that you just look at it and you know that it could kill you in an instant. That no matter how good of a swimmer you were, um, if you were like one of these triathletes, that it wouldn't take just a moment of jumping into that water and you would be under and there was no way you were going to be able to survive. That it was that powerful and how destructive water can be and how much damage it can do whenever it comes together like that in just the right kind of circumstances in these perfect storms in a way where the hurricanes come through and are strong. But at the same time there, I'm swimming in a pool and then here we need water in all respects of life. It is one of the most unique things in our planet that gives us and sustains for us life, that other people are constantly looking for it when they look at other planets. Is there water somewhere on there that could possibly allow life to live? It is a life-giving component, and it is also a life-taking component. And we have the same kind of thing with fire. I was just looking there at the hymn that we last sung in the one verse there, if I can find it here. I should have just marked it down, but it was talking about the, the difference between, oh yeah, verse 3 of all creatures of our God and King. It says, O flowing water, pure and clear, make music for your Lord to hear. Alleluia, alleluia. O fire, so masterful and bright, providing us warmth and light. And we know that both of those things here, we see how it is giving us these things, but we know that water and fire are very destructive and how they are some of the most destructive things that we have in life, that God Himself destroyed the whole earth with water. So there's a reality of water that we must respect. And Lifeguard Larry was telling me that it's important for us to understand what goes on with water, both in its provision and also in its judgment and in its wrath, and that it gives us this great respect for water. And as I was leaving, he was telling me that I asked him what I could be praying for, and he says, Well, I have to take a um, CDL license test for the school bus that I'm driving. 
And, um, and I'm just going to take it really slow because it doesn't take much to wipe out something. And I said, well, it's good that you understand how quickly it is that you can destroy something with something so large. I said, it's like Sophia, my 17-year-old, she's no hurry to, to learn and get her, I mean, no hurry to get her license and get on the road because she has a, a fear of it. And he said, it's probably going to make her one of the best drivers on the road is to have a respectful fear of what's going on out there. I give you these things this morning to help us to understand that there is a reality that seems to be a duality, maybe even a paradox of how there are things in our life that are wondrous and providing and also destructive. And that we must have a faithful understanding of the reality of these things. I believe this particular passage here, the way that it's presented, is reminding us not just of the old order of things, which it is one of the primary things of Hebrews, is to highlight and to shine a light on the things of the old covenant, but then to present how wonderful and how great and superior the new covenant is. But we have an interesting way of presenting here that he is telling us that there are these things about the Old Covenant that is not a part of what we are coming to today. And it would be tempting if we just read that one section for us to think, well, okay, well, all of the wrath, wrath and destructive nature and all the power and the scary stuff is being moved away. And it's important for us not to see it that way, that there's still this power that is purposely being described both in giving us a reason to be thankful, but also for us to have this continuation of warning. We must maintain the respect of the reality of God's power to understand what he has accomplished in Christ in the new covenant. We must understand the things that have passed away, but the things that have now been put before us, and for the things that are to come. And having a respect for the reality is what helps transform us into faithful worshiper, worship, worshipers and followers of God. Like Sophia with this right fear thing. She knows that she needs to learn how to drive sometimes so she can get from point A to point B. We live in a society that relies on transportation. Every one of us came here in a vehicle. No one walked here. I remember when Isabel used to walk here, uh, so I'm glad that that wasn't this morning, or she would have said, I didn't drive in a car. <laughs> she did come into a vehicle, so, so far all of us came here in a vehicle, and we know how necessary it is and how helpful it is, but it's also a very dangerous thing. And so when we go, come to the Lord, we must understand the fullness of the reality, and that will help us to be more faithful worshiper, worshipers and followers. I'm wanting to merge those words really quickly, which is not necessarily a... Terribly bad thing. It says here in verses 18 through 21 of the things that we are, have not come to. Now, obviously, the writer to the Hebrews is wanting for us to understand these things in a very graphic detail for a purpose. So let's go through these particular words. These are pretty powerful words. It says, for you have not come to what may be touched. And I think we should stop there and understand that this is the beginning of this particular paragraph. And so this is a, the, the meaning of the, everything that we're about to see. That it has to do with the things that can be touched. That when we come to worship God, that we are not caught up in the things that are the physical so much. The things that are going to be passing. But there were things in that particular order 
that inside of that presentation of that order, things that were very physical, that were very daunting, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Here are things that are taken particularly out of Exodus chapter 19 in the presentation of the law. If you know Exodus, you know that in chapter 20 we have the Ten Commandments and the the law was given. And this is the initiation and this is the presentation of when the law was given to us. And it's saying here that we're not coming under those kind of circumstances. We're not coming under that particular covenant. Not that these are something that these were bad ideas and things that God did not intend to do or shouldn't have done, but these are things that we have gone and progressed from because of what has happened in Christ. We have not come to that kind of moment where the law is the thing that is just leveling us out and we have no hope. When we look at these words, when we see blazing fire and darkness and gloom, and and I love the word gloom there, and it's probably one of the best English words that you can get out of the Greek there, that it is a darkness that you can sense and feel and even taste is probably about the best way to describe it. It's just a thick darkness and a heavy darkness, a tempest, which is like the wind and a disruption. If you think about a hurricane and then the sound of a trumpet, this, this trumpet sound that is frightening and powerful at the same time. And then this voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them because in these particular words, these were words of judgment and in contrast to our unrighteousness, they were overwhelming. And when we think about the ramifications of what our unrighteousness deserves, it is crushing. And then as Moses, who was given this great privilege To be able to be before the Lord, he even says himself that I tremble with fear. Now we know that in these things that in everything that we've seen building up in Hebrews thus far is that there's been these constant reminders of God's judgment. We know that judgment has not been totally removed from the future. But that we understand that in the context of this particular judgment is the judgment that comes to us because of the law. When we are in Christ, that judgment has been extinguished because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And so we're wanting to see the power. We want to continue to be reminded of the reality of God's judgment and the power of that judgment so that we can understand that what we are coming to here in verse 22 is a complete transition from judgment to grace. We see in verses 22 through 24 that but you have come and you have come to something more superior. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering and the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, 
to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here we see this tremendous contrast between the fright and the power and the the judgment. And here we have where we have this access now to God. But it's very important that we slow down and that we look at what's going on here. So the first thing is what we have not come to, which we have not come to the old order. We have not come to that which is passing. We have not come to something that's physical, the temple on earth as it used to be. We have not come to a place that has a specific geographical location as it had at one time. And that encompassed around that was a particular order. And that particular order had a purpose that we could not bear and that we could not endure. But now, in verse 22, we have come to something else. The first thing that we see there is a description of the what that we've come to. And then the second part that we see there is who all has come to this. And then the third part is the who and the why of what we have come to. Let's look at the first three things mentioned there. We have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, Mount Zion, we can say, wait a minute, you just said that it wasn't a geographical location. We know that Zion has been referred to in many different ways, but it ultimately revolves around Jerusalem. But what we see in this particular description is that there has been this movement of Jerusalem. We see that, yes, there's still this Mount Zion that we all have come to. We see that there is this centerpiece of God's kingdom. And we see that there is a city of the living God, and then he calls it, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, those three particular descriptions of what we are coming to, the what we are coming to, is very important for Christians. It's very important particularly for these Christians because these are Hebrew Christians. And there is the temptation to hold on to the past, to hold on to the old covenant, to hold on to the original Zion, if you could even say the Mount Zion, to the original Jerusalem. Now we live in a time now, particularly in the last few weeks, where there has been brought to our attention again a nation called Israel that's over in the Middle East and of the city of Jerusalem. And amongst the American Christians particularly, there has been this elevated attention and interest and sympathy for what's going on over there. And rightly so. They, they have had tremendous atrocities put upon them because of Hamas. And there's very good reasons for us to re- react with sadness and to be praying for those people. But you can also begin to hear amongst many different pulpits throughout America the chatter and the discussions that God is doing something particularly based upon a doctrine of understanding that God has got something special for these particular people in store for us in the future. This type of doctrine is from a doctrine called dispensationalism, that 
there is a particular two groups of people that are considered to be God's people, that you have Israel, but then you also have the church. It's a continuation of the Old Testament Israel in parallel with the new institution of the church. Now, this is a very novel, and I, you might be thinking, oh my goodness, is Charles going to preach on this today? And I'm, I'm going to reference it, but I'm not going to try to preach on the fullness of dispensationalism today. Dispensationalism was really a theology that was introduced by a guy named John Nelson Darby in the 1800s. It's a fairly novel doctrine of understanding. And what happened with John Nelson Darby, that around October 1827, he fell off his horse. You might think I'm making a joke here, but it's the truth. He fell off of his horse, and he was injured pretty heavily. He was an Anglican priest at one time, and then he left the Anglican church. He's an Irishman. And he was riding his horse, and he fell off, and he got injured. And while he was in recovery, he was, I think he may have been um, injured. It was a long-term injury for him. He had an epiphany about Isaiah 35, and he saw that, that the old Israel was a continuation, that, they, that those particular people were continuing. They have to keep in mind that during this time, there was no nation of Israel in the sense of what it is today. That's a, a fairly novel country also that occurred in 1948. And he began teaching this, and he actually had conferences that taught that there was these, this continuation of Israel at the same time as there was a new birth of a people called the church. And they were not the same. They were actually a separate entity. And as you begin to understand that this was taught, and it was taught in, in some of our most popular um, seminaries, the Dallas Theological Seminary is one who was kind of a spearhead, um, spearheading this doctrine in their teaching. And if you've ever heard of Schofield Bible, it was written into the notes of that particular study Bible. And it was a very prominent teaching that became a very American understanding of these two distinct people that you have the old Israel and you have the church. Now, if you've been following along in Hebrews, you would say, well, that, that seems a little different than how the writer to the Hebrews has been presenting the church. And I would say you are correct. That particular doctrine, I believe, the Bible does not teach. I believe it's very clear in the book of Hebrews. I think we see it in the book of Romans particularly, that we who hold on to Christ in faith are the seed of Abraham. And that it has been very clear in its prophecies of the Old Testament and now proclaimed and fulfilled in the New Testament that the church that we see being instituted in Acts was really a new covenant church that is a continuation of ultimately the church that goes all the way back to Genesis. And we can see that, I think, if we look at scriptures, and there's people who can disagree with that. But it's important for us to see here how the writer to the Hebrews merges this what we are coming to in worship. We are coming to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We see this description of Jerusalem, that there's a heavenly Jerusalem. 
Now, if we remember that when we go back to the beginning of Hebrews, that we see what Jesus had accomplished, and he is superior to the angels, he's superior to the prophets, he's superior to Moses, he's superior to the law because he has accomplished the law, and that he has now ascended and sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and that he is the centerpiece of everything that we hope to, and that we are there... We have been given access by identity to be in the presence of God and that while we are still here on this earth, not yet fully there because there's a rest still to come, that there is now a place where the center dwelling of God is that is no longer geographically residing at a specific place in the Middle East. Now, some of you may have thought, that's always what I thought. Now, to be an American, typically, especially an American of this particular age, this is something that is difficult for us to put our minds around because there's so much around us that highlight that there is this, still this special place for the physical nation of Israel that exists today. And They are special, just like many other nations and and all of people who bear God's image. And they have some unique things about them because the things that they teach and they understand are connected to things that are in the scripture. But the problem that we see here when we come to the book of Hebrews is that the book of Hebrews is highlighting that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And for those who refuse him as we will see again later on in this passage, have nothing but fear that they should expect to come upon them. We should be praying for Israel. We should be praying for the Hamas and the Palestine and for all of the Middle East, but for any of those there that are refusing the Messiah because there's nothing but judgment to come. And we should be praying for all the Christians who are there because they are suffering and being persecuted continually much like the Christians here in the book of Hebrews were as well. So those three particular descriptions are very important for us to understand that this is a continuation of what God intended for his dwelling place to be and for the city to be, but it's a furthering of that. The city of the living God encompasses now this understanding of the resurrected Christ and this calling of now the heavenly Jerusalem. It has expanded and it has now encompassed more. Really, ultimately, it's encompassing the whole world of all those who profess the name of Jesus Christ. This is the what. This is the what we have come to. But the people that we have come with, the creatures that we've come with even, it says to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now, this is where I was going with this when understanding the reality of the power of what is going on. It is so important for us, like when we think about worship, that we kind of think about it in light of water. That yes, it's a a comforting thing. It's an encouraging thing for us to be gathering together and to hopefully be lifting each other up or seeing friends. And it's a nourishing thing. But it is a very powerful thing for us to understand that when we have come together as his people, when we assemble, as we see in the next Section there, it says to innumerable angels in festal gathering and the assembly of the firstborn, that we are coming together 
with angels. We're not seeing angels right now with our eyes. But the Bible is teaching us, and I am declaring to you with faith and with a declaration of authority of the word of God that our worship today is alongside of angels. And that we are worshiping together amongst all of God's people, both what worked in art and forevermore. That we are together, assembled here particularly as communion fellowship, but that we are amongst the whole assembly of the church of the firstborn. Now, we're not talking about the firstborn, that this is just an assembly of people who were the first physical son or children of a particular household, but of the firstborn, the firstborn of the dead, the one who is now living, Jesus Christ. That this is the assembly, this is the church of Jesus Christ. And this is for the whole church. This is for all of those who have believed in the past. This encompasses and includes those who were enrolled in heaven, such as Moses and Abraham, and all those who trusted in God in faith. It is also for those that when we are celebrating now on Reformation, the Reformation Day, that it is for those in the churches of that day and before that time who were trusting the Lord and trusting his word even when there was great corruption in the church and even when there was great deception and darkness in the church, we have assembled with them. This is the combination of the church militant and the church triumphant because this is for all those who are enrolled in heaven, as Ephesians says, since the foundations of the world. These are people that God have called to be his people. And it is also those who are to come. And so those are the who that we are gathered with. But then in the next section, it says, and to God, the judge of all. So here we are reminded that even though we have this contrast, that it's not the same gloom and darkness that we saw in the first section, but that we have actually come to the very God who is the judge of all. So that we might not be deceived and confused that we come to a God that is no longer a judge. And that is somewhat, again, very much like dispensationalism. We have now this theology and this understanding of God that he's just our bud. He's just our pal. And so when we come to worship him, it's okay if you come in your pajamas, stay in your pajamas even. You know, because he, he's just, he's, he's, he's your buddy. He's one of the best friends that you can have, and he'll, he'll do whatever you want to do. Just hang out. That is a, a weird, but that is a very prominent understanding and theology of God to this day. So here the writer to the Hebrews is reminding us that this who that we are coming to is to God, the judge of all, along with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, this is the church triumphant. These are the spirits of those who were before us that are deemed righteous. And we've already seen this in the hall of faith. And they have been made perfect. They were righteous because of their faith in the one who is perfect. 
And they have now been made perfect. We are amongst a very large assembly of creatures when we come and worship God. That is the reality of what is occurring. It's that big of a deal. And right now, more than any time that I've ever seen in my lifetime, Satan is really promoting a very contrasting and opposite and contrary theology. That it's not important for us to be assembled here. We have to remember that who is it that's coming together? The assembly. What is another word of the assembly? Church. We have come together to worship this judge of all, along with all of those who have been made perfect and through the righteousness of Christ are now considered to be righteous. It's interesting, again, I know I've highlighted this time and time again, I'm just constantly reminded by so many things in our culture, how people, they think about heaven and they think about loved ones and they look forward to seeing their loved ones. But when we come together in worship, and I'm, and I'm not trying to be weird here and I'm not trying to be mystic here, but when, if, if you have loved ones who are in heaven and who are with the Lord, that when we come together, based upon what the word of the Lord is telling us, that we have assembled, not only with each other, but we have assembled with those who are now deemed righteous and made perfect in Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing. There are so many people who are looking forward to the end when they can be reunited, but they are not interested in being amongst the Lord, with those who have been made perfect in the Lord. And that's a very sad thing, and that's why we see in the book of Hebrews particularly that we are to not neglect coming together, because this is what God demands. Because we're coming to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The reason why now that we do not see and look over the ocean at Jerusalem as being the center of our hope. And nor should anyone of any kind of heritage of being a Jew should be looking at that particular place because they need to be looking at Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. He is superior in that it says that we've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now this blood of Abel was two, is a two-parter here. One is the blood of Abel that came in the sacrifice that Abel presented that was accepted by God. But that particular sacrifice was an animal sacrifice and it was only a pointer to Jesus. It is also speaking to the blood of Abel because he was killed and there was justice necessary that the blood of Abel was even crying out for justice. And in Jesus Christ, not only did he fulfill what the animal sacrifice was pointing to, but also the judgment that was being cried out because of Abel. It was converging both. It's both of those bloods that Jesus is the one who fulfills that. We do not want to go back to a physical temple in a physical nation and deal with sprinkled blood of animals. We want to be focusing on Jesus Christ. 
This is the reality of the one people of God. God has proclaimed in his word that we are one, that we are children and heirs of Abraham because of faith. I don't mean to pick on the people who may be embraced or affected, and I think I'm still affected by dispensationalism in many different ways. But we have to remember that its origins came ultimately from a man. It did not come from the scriptures. It came from human reason. And not to be too snarky, but Luther even said that human reason is like a drunken man on horseback, set up on one side and tumbles over on the other. That this doctrine is not a doctrine that comes from Scripture because this doctrine tells us that there is another path. It is a very dangerous path that is absent of Jesus Christ. Speaking of Luther here, we can see the solas in this particular passage. In verse 22 through 24, in contrast to 1821, we now understand that it is in grace alone in which we are saved, that this right, these righteous people made perfect is because of that mediator, Jesus Christ. And that they get to be called righteous, not because of fulfilling the law themselves, but because Jesus fulfilled the law. And we understand that from verses 18 through 21, that they cannot bear the order. They could not fulfill the law. And so therefore, we understand that salvation comes only by grace alone. Also in verse 22 through 24, we know that it is in faith alone. It is in faith in Christ that makes us righteous, that we are deemed righteous because our faith points to the one in which we are holding to, which is Christ alone there in verse 24. So as we see this great reality of what is going on, the very power of what is going on, not just in our worship, but the power of the kingdom of God and the power of his strength, in both being the just and the justifier, being the judge and the one who is full of grace, his power, what does he tell us now to do with that reality? In verse 25, it says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There are two things here that we must remember that's repeated over and over again. You can see it here. It is, let's look at this, how often we see this. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Warned them on earth through words. Warns now from heaven a voice that shook the earth. And then it even highlights this phrase, yet once more indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that are the things that have been made. It is pointing out that it is God's word that we are to listen to and to respond to. It is scripture alone that is our authority. It is not some epiphany that we may have if we fall off of a horse. 
We must go back to the word of God. And we must dwell upon the word of God and that we begin to understand that it is Jesus who is the word of God. We have been given this great revelation. We do not want to deceive people. And the writer to the Hebrews did not want to deceive these particular Christians that we need to go and hold on to something that was actually made by hands, instructed by God, but now has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because these shadows are passing shadows. And we must listen and not refuse this proclamation of the superiority of Jesus Christ. And that is why we should reject any doctrine that would point to some other way apart from Jesus Christ. It is in Scripture alone that we are to learn this from and to hope in that it is through that authority and not the authority of any man, not even the reformers. Some of the reformers get a few things wrong, but one of the things that they used in the spearhead of what they were hoping in, and I will get things wrong as well. I may have even touched on some things that are wrong today. I don't Maybe if I go back and look at it, but it is pointing you and hopefully pointing you that it is by Scripture alone that we have our any kind of hope, and that it is that is the, what is our authority, not in mankind. And so we are to respond to his word. We are to see that even in this proclamation that there is a coming judgment for those who refuse him. The only reason why that we can stand amongst those who are in festal gathering, the only way that we can stand amongst those who are the righteous made perfect, The only way that we can stand before a God who is the judge of all and who can stand upon, stand with Jesus Christ is that we have that sprinkled blood upon us that cleanses us from our sins. That is what we are to proclaim. And that is what we are to accept. And this is the calling of the kingdom to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ for his kingdom is at hand. So there we see grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, and even in Scripture alone. But look at how it is that we are to respond there in verse 28. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and in all, for our God is a consuming fire. Our response to this great reality, the reality of the nature of the kingdom of God, the reality of who we are amongst, and the reality of who we are going to to worship, is to understand this powerful and mighty and gracious and good God, is to one, to be thankful. We are those who are allowed to draw near to God because of Jesus Christ. And therefore, our confession should encourage us to have a humble response of thanksgiving and obedience. To understand that we are in a kingdom and we are not those who are in anarchy. We are a kingdom who is under a king. And that kingdom is eternal and that kingdom calls us to be his disciples. And a disciple is to be his followers. And a disciple can't be a follower unless he's 
accepting and following through with the words that he has been given, the instructions. Jesus says that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so therefore we are to hold fast our confession without wavering, understanding that this is something that has been given to us. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It does not say that we have received as in past tense, And it doesn't just say that we will receive a kingdom. It says that we are receiving a kingdom. And when we look at the passage there being there amongst those in festival gathering, we are in the middle of this receiving of the kingdom. And we should have humble and thankful hearts to understand this great reality of what is occurring. But then lastly, we are to offer God acceptable worship. And what does that teach you when it says acceptable worship? It teaches you that there can be things called worship that's not acceptable, right? That the worship must be acceptable by God. It doesn't mean that you can just slap on the label worship to anything and say, okay, it's good, that's worship. It says acceptable worship. What does acceptable worship look like? With reverence and awe. And how is the context of that reverence and all? For our God is a consuming fire. So we start that particular passage understanding the fire, the power that is there in the beginning when the old order was given, that fire is still there. Now, the difference is, is that those who hold on to Jesus Christ, that fire was poured out upon his son. On our behalf. And that means that our response should be tremendous humility. It doesn't mean that we just wash away any kind of respectful fear. It means that it should cause us to have a deeper understanding. If those who were there at Mount Sinai could not handle the power that was being displayed there, for those of us who are called to Mount Zion it should actually mean even more to us because we understand the fullness of what that wrath was on Jesus Christ. We now understand that he did this for all of his people. It is not lighting lighting up the weight of that power. It's actually magnified because we see it in light of the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. We see here that when we come to worship God, to give acceptable worship of God, it is for his glory. Everything that we try to do here at Communion Fellowship is to try to take the glory off of ourselves, and we still probably are not doing a great job at it compared to what God truly deserves and demands. It is to try to diminish any kind of rerouting that glory to ourselves. And I do say that with humility because I'm sure that one day that maybe if there is some kind of evaluation of our worship, we'll be found wanting in certain ways. But we live in a very heavy culture of self-glorifying worship. Luther said that he's not afraid of the Pope as much as he's afraid of the Pope in his own heart. Because he knows the tendency to want to steal that glory, to steal that authority, to steal that focus to himself. 
And so when we look at this last tenet of the solas of the Reformation, it is for God's glory, not our own. We are not here as a bunch of individual popes. But unfortunately, the irony is that I think that in many ways, the things that the Reformation was fighting against, there's been a kind of counter-Reformation, not so much by the Roman Catholic Church, but by the whole evangelical world to establish many popes to unto themselves, both into their glory and to their authority, and unfortunately also into their own hope of salvation. Again, we are to proclaim against anything that would preach away apart from Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with the words of a couple of verses out of the song, We Are Marching to Zion. It says, The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields, before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. This is where we are. We are in the midst of the middle. We are in the receiving of the kingdom. We have not yet made it to the golden streets, but we have already received a thousand sacred sweets that flow from the hill of Zion where Jesus resides with the Father. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, to this heavenly Zion, the beautiful city of God. And then there's this warning. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. We do not want to confuse the world to be singing along with us. And we're not wanting to sing along those who do not know Jesus Christ. But we are calling out to people as the children of the heavenly king, as the children of the heavenly king. And we are speaking the joys abroad and speaking the joys abroad of this great reality of this great heavenly Zion that has been won and accomplished by Jesus Christ. So as we continue to worship together this day and other days, let us remember the great powerful reality of what it is to be those who are worshipers of Jesus Christ and followers of Jesus Christ. It may not seem like much. We're just a bunch of sleepy and weak people here coming together to worship the Lord. I'm just a sleepy and weak pastor trying to point you into that way. But as we look into this word, we see that we have a powerful God who has won this kingdom. And there's a greater reality that is occurring now and will be revealed even more in time to come. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great reality of who 